Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 30, Eigenrobot vs. Michael of Barbary. Hi all, I am here with the frequently banned Michael of Barbary, currently uh, at Corsair Michel, but but what the hell do you get banned for, dude? Uh, You're so... Uh, I, I mean, and I, I mean it in the like best possible way. You seem really inoffensive. And usually I am. You know, I don't, I don't go out of my way to be an asshole. But similarly, I don't go out of my way to pull my punches with anybody. And if someone pisses me off, they're going to know about it. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I uh. People who are deserving of ire frequently receive it from me, and the people who are deserving of ire tend to have a lot of pull, so I get banned semi regularly. <laughs> what? What? What is your? What is the? What is your favorite ban that you've received? Oh, like, which one are you most proud of? God, I'm trying to even remember them all because I, I you know, I. For the most part, when these things happen, I kind of laugh about it a little bit at the time and then forget about it like 10 seconds later because it's not really that important to me. Um, mm-hmm. God, I'm even trying to remember what the most recent one was because that was only... God, what was that? A month ago? Two months ago? Something like that? I don't even remember yeah. now. But fairly recently. Yeah. So, I'm really curious yeah, I don't about know. it. I... So I have never been banned. I've, I think I was suspended once. I was suspended once because I posted, there was a stabbing in Japan a while ago. And it was, it was a really Andari thing where some girl waited in the lobby of her boyfriend's, or not even her boyfriend's apartment, but some guy she was really into, waited in the lobby uh-huh. of his, like, and I, I don't know whether she had a dagger or whether she had a legit sword, but she definitely stabbed him and there are some photos of her like smoking a cigarette in the lobby or with with police around and like this dude is just lying there naked in a pool of his own blood it's pretty and metal though it's it's super metal and it was i mean like the photo was very <laughs> aesthetic you know sort of like that that photo of the the turkish that that turkish assassin who shot the russian ambassador and oh yeah. or something like that like that with a guy wild. like yeah right so I, I mean, like, I'm not into snuff at all, but there are certain murder scenes that are inarguably really, really aesthetic to look at. And I, I think the guy in Japan didn't die. And the other guy was a Russian ambassador. And there are he people too. But dead. also, yeah, he was he was super dead. Uh, big F, I guess, to the Russian ambassador yeah. to Turkey. I um, mean, he was a Russian dealing with the Turks. I'm yeah, necessarily inclined to think that any of these were good people. Yeah, well, some of them, I assume, <laughs> Russia not sending its best. Yeah. Um, um, oh, but that to go back just real quickly. Speaking of you know violence, that's frequently what I get in trouble for on Twitter. Is I have a very big habit of Fed posting. I was gonna say can't <laughs> so, Fed post. Can't Fed post. Oh, oh man. I do so much <laughs> so that gets uh, me in a little bit of trouble too yeah did you see i guess the guy who was responsible for um some some major part of the 
ATF response to uh, oh, Brad Chavidians oh. is getting appointed yes, as the, oh, the head of the ATF. Yeah, see, no, it wasn't like he was sort of responsible for it. He was the lead investigative agent. Well, was he? Was he the guy who was really pushing? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Are, are you he, Are you a Waco expert? I am not. I am okay. probably a little bit better versed than the average person, but that's not difficult to do because the average person doesn't know shit about it. Yeah. There were some weirdo religious people down there that got in a shootout with the ATF and then the place burnt down. Yeah, man. I So I was... I mean, like, I was in grade school when it happened, and li- living in North Dakota, actually, and yes. uh, and I, I, I mean, I knew there was some kind of shootout, but it was it was all very vague to me. And Janet Reno was somehow involved, and <laughs> Janet Reno, Janet she Reno. basically gave most of the go ahead for it. Yeah, like it and, ran through the the USAG's office. Yeah. And I mean, so I don't know, for people who are not woke to Waco, like it was a complete clusterfuck. It it was the ATF. Yeah, I mean, it was like the ATF. I, I think this story was there was some kind of budget cut that the ATF was going to be hit by. And so they were trying to justify their existence. And so it, oh, sorry. No, no, go. I mean, you, you probably. I was going to say it, it depends on how how much you believe the various conspiracies about it. I'm inclined to believe this quite a lot personally. Oh, me too. But <laughs> Whatever you're going to say, I'm inclined to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so for those who also remember shortly around the same time, slightly before specifically of Waco, there was an event up in, I believe it was Montana or either Wyoming known as Ruby Ridge, where the feds got their noses bloodied real bad in the public eye. Because there was some dude who was kind of a prepper and kind of anti-government, but more or less just wanted to be left the fuck alone, living up in the mountains by himself with his wife and like his, I think the kid was like seven or eight, something like that, right? And they had like a dog and it was just like them. Or, or maybe there was two kids, but either way, it was this one family. He hated the government as any reasonable person should. Yeah, no. And sounds and, like it's just uh, a normal guy so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so far so good. Yeah, you know, I mean he was he was a little bit of a, a prepper, which especially at that time was kind of weird. But you know, whatever. Yeah. Again, he had a bunch of guns. The ATF went in there History has proved and, him right. Oh, very much so. The ATF went in there for I don't even remember why. But I believe their opening move was to shoot the sun in the back. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, Things went real bad at Ruby Ridge, and they lost a lot in the court of public opinion. Because this guy was, he was a weirdo, and he was was dangerous in that he was kind of a separatist, and he had a lot of guns, but he wasn't a danger to, like, everybody that knew him. I mean, who among us? Pretty much. (laughs) And everybody that knew him around in the surrounding community, community, excuse me more or less liked him. Like he was kind of the weirdo that lived up in the mountains, but he was harmless to them. Yeah. So they lost a lot in the eyes of the public during that. So the conspiracy, and I don't think it's even a very thinly veiled conspiracy. I think there might be records kind of saying this, like they wanted a win and they wanted a big one and they wanted a public win because some of that budget stuff, like 
they were facing some cuts. They had just lost a whole shitload of public support because of Ruby Ridge. So here are these weirdo religious people down in Texas that are manufacturing rifles perfectly legally and selling them perfectly legally, by the by. Like, they weren't selling fully automatics. They weren't modifying AR-15s to, to be something illegal. They, they were building and had the appropriate licensing for the state of Texas to manufacture and sell rifles at gun shows, which is how they made their money. You know, it was all above board. Good American business. Guy, really? I mean, like, they, they weren't even doing it in secret. Like, they were out in the open. Everybody knew that they were, yeah, they were these weirdo religious people on the, the edge of Waco, but eh, whatever. They seemed decent enough people. And, and that's where things really get fucking crazy with Waco is, and these are things I've heard from, uh, if anybody ever listens to Pete Quinones, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I don't even fucking remember. Free Man Beyond the Wall. Uh, he, I think last year had David Thibodeau on. David Thibodeau was one of the Waco survivors. He was with the Davidians in the compound. He was a Davidian. Yeah. He survived that. So he was there firsthand. And uh, he was talking about some of this. And, uh, like, apparently they had a real good relationship, the Davidians, with the local sheriff. Yep, yep, I remember and, that. And the, the ATF did follow some protocol at least and, and approached the local sheriff about all this stuff first. Cause they were looking for Koresh specifically. Mm -hmm. and the sheriff was like, I know the guy we go down to the shooting range periodically and shoot together. Like you want to talk to him? Cool. I can go up to his door, knock on his door, ask him to come down. He'll come down. No fuss, no muss. And they were like, no, we want to take him our way and enter the siege of Waco. Yeah. And what, 40 some odd days later or whatever it was, there's 50 people dead, including like a dozen children. Yep. So good job, ATF. That's the guy that's now in charge of the ATF helping push all the gun control bullshit. The guy that yeah. helped burn children alive. Good job, guys. Yeah. I, proud I, remember, I remember specifically there were a lot of efforts – I mean, I want to say efforts. There were a lot of stories in the press contemporaneously about how it was some kind of a major cult. And again, I was in grade school, so I don't remember all the details. But, it, you know, there are these really lurid, lurid stories of suicide rituals and child abuse and stuff like that. And in retrospect, I guess I'm kind of skeptical of it. So from what I recall hearing, and, and this has been close to a year now, okay? So yeah. And in mind, my memory is faulty, just like any other person's. But from what I recall Thibodeau speaking on, some of that's complete bullshit. Some of it, there's some merit. Yeah. So Koresh, from what I have seen, read, and heard, was kind of a scumbag in, oh, in yeah. a lot of ways. Like, he was kind of doing things with these kids that you shouldn't do. Now, when I say kids, I'm talking like 13, 14, 15 year olds. I'm not talking like seven and eight year olds. 
Yeah, okay, so like chits. classic, classic, classic uh, lower right quadrant. All right, kind of. Yeah, like they're still kids. <laughs> yeah, but, no, no. But and he and that's gross. But I mean, let's be honest here. That's first off. That's not why the ATF was after him. Yeah. That was something they started pushing after the work after the fact to make it look like they were punishing some monster when that had nothing to do with it. And secondly, even if that's true, and that is what they were doing, uh, saving children by burning them alive, probably not a smart move. We had to burn the children to save them. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It seems like, from what I remember, there was maybe a wave of this kind of, like... I remember there were panics about a militia movement in the nineties and there oh, was yeah. this big wave of federal, like, I mean, really, really violent action against people who are pretty far to the right. Mm-hmm. And there was maybe, it, it seems like that just completely disappeared during the Bush years and everybody was obsessed about the war on terror anyway. I, well, yeah, I, it's because they had, they had the, the new, new enemy. Yeah, yeah. So they could they could like go and look for terrorists or whatever, and there was there was kind of a resurgence during the Obama years. Like, I mean, there was the um, there was that weird ass shootout between the bikers and Texas. Was that done by Texas cops or was that feds? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about with that. Okay, so so basically there was this there was this massive shootout. I think between biker gangs and cops and maybe the biker gangs among one another and the cops showed up and arrested a ton of people on charges of murder, but very quickly. And this is all going from memory very quickly. It became clear that maybe the cops had started the shootout and maybe they were trying to railroad the entire set of bikers into being prosecuted for murder. I mean, there were like dozens of people being charged. It was, it was a huge shootout. So, I mean, like that seems like one, one more case along these lines. And the other one was the, uh, was it, this was definitely under Obama and definitely nationalized. The, was it the Bundys? Was that the name of the, Oh, that's that kind of going on. The Eamon Bundy out in Idaho. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. That, that it kind of came to a head under Obama, but I mean, that's still sort of going on and it's, it's been going on. I think it started in the the latter part of the Bush, the second Bush administration. Oh, wow. Really? The second Bush's second term. That's what I was trying to get across doing very poorly of. So, you know, I think it, I think it basically would have been like started kind of 06, 07 ish and then continued on. Or maybe like oh seven oh eight ish, and then continued on from there through Obama stuff, and it kind of kind of came to a head. But that was yeah, that was if I if I remember right, that was basically over grazing and water rights in Western Idaho. Yeah. No, that 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 sounds right, and it seemed like it was a major land dispute. But you know, the the way that it was played up definitely feeds into this kind of a theme of, I mean, like you know, basically rural, you know, again, quadrant four people like having beef with the feds and the federal government generally, and it gets played up into be much much more than whatever you know minor issue is. 
is at stake yeah. at any given time. And the, I mean, I, I think the relationship between people like this and the feds is kind of interesting because usually one thinks of law enforcement as, I mean, being fairly authoritarian, yeah, but also being kind of right wing. And generally, so the right yeah. wingers certainly do. But also at the national level, I sort of suspect that's not true. You know, like I think about the sort of people who go and work at the FBI, and my guess is they tend to be more coastal than probably than interior. Probably so, almost almost to a man, I would bet. Yeah. So that'll be fun. <laughs> Look forward to this going forward. Oh yeah, it ought to oh. be real friggin' interesting. Mm. I mean the the question mark I've kind of got with all this, especially with him doing all this shit through executive order is, and this is probably one of the biggest question marks in my mind is what's the Supreme court going to feel like on the day when that finally hits their desks? Because you know, it's going there. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no way it can't. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I don't know. I mean, from, I've, I've, I've developed opinions about gun rights in the last year, um, especially having become a gun owner mm-hmm. myself. <clears throat> and, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm at this point... Yeah, I've got to say real quickly... Control. Yeah. Yeah. i got to say real quickly, too, it has been wonderful watching that evolution from a little bit of a distance, from somebody who was kind of, eh, eh I don't really care, to... No, no, this is very important, and you people need to kind of screw off now. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've always had kind of a, like, screw-off attitude toward well, yeah. it. But, uh, I mean, in this in particular, it's gotten to be more intense. And, I mean, you know, it feels, it feels much more salient when there's really a palpable sense of social disorder. You know, I mean, the early days of the pandemic... It, it felt like things were tottering in a certain way. And oh, yeah. I mean, you know, partly in the early days of the pandemic, I mean, my, our response, you know, we, we started stocking up. I want to, well, we got our masks in January and then we spent a lot of February just getting supplies. Not because we, I remember talking with moon and I mean, my view is like, you know, maybe 25, roughly something like 25% doesn't even pan out to be a major pandemic you know, 50% things get pretty strained and uncomfortable, but everything holds together. 20% things get really bad, you know, 5% (laughs) really, really bad. And so, you, I mean, like, you know, those are big, you know, gross estimates, but, but my view is like, all right, so probably if it's, it's worth just preparing for these low probability, but much higher probability than I would have said a few months ago scenarios. So, I mean, like we mostly stocked up on food and water and emergency supplies, but I mean, also just, you know, in case of these tail risks, uh, we, we started getting more, you know, armaments and, and in particular, and then, you know, things faded out for a bit, but then, you know, in May and June, things seemed like they were really quite unstable. And it was like, well, I feel, I feel better being somewhat armed. So out in your area of the world, especially like things, obviously I I don't live out there. So I'm, I'm having to go through hearsay a lot and all that kind of stuff, but it, it certainly was played up like things were completely fucking insane out there. Yeah. And I I mean, I could talk about that a little bit in, in Seattle, 
Um, I, I don't know as much about Portland and I don't have the, the same kind of sense of what things were like on the ground. In Seattle, there's this, this neighborhood called Capitol Hill, which is across the lake for me at this point, fortunately, because yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be over there in the summer. And Capitol Hill used to be sort of a theater and gay district. I mean, like, you know, big historical gay district, they still play it up. Right now, it's 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 gotten to be a pretty expensive place to live. I mean, if you want to buy like a newly constructed sort of row home, not row home, but like these these somewhat prefab homes that are put up, mm-hmm. um, those usually cost about seven hundred fifty thousand. If you want to get Christ. one of the nicer, if you want to get one of the nicer old houses that's you know like has a lawn and and is a proper house and you know sort of nice architecture, those those are usually a couple of million dollars. So it's that not could a place you a hundred acres in a small mansion out here. <laughs> Even still, okay, I want to talk about that too. But um, but I mean, like, so it's not a place where there are a lot of poor gay people anymore. You know, it's it's not no, like they can't be. <laughs> no, no. So so it's this neighborhood where there are a lot of people who perhaps used to be poor gay people and associates, and um, you know, some of them who own land still own that land. But for the most part, it's a little bit built up and it's kind of split somewhat between, you know, starting out techies and who, who are fine and rich and all work in Amazon or whatever. And then the, the remaining leftists. And I used to hang out with those people back when I was dating one. And back then they were, they were a little intense, but, you know, this was mostly pre-Gamergate. And, and so it was like, old left you know where it was yeah. like still it there's a little bit of militancy about it like there's a there's a local group that's existed for some time called um uh coalition of anti-racist whites car w and i mean like i knew a bunch of people who were involved with that and i, I don't think it was good for them you know it was a lot of it was a lot of really intense critical race theory and it was supposed to be this group that was like an auxiliary for a lot of the the say the um, you know more minority oriented interest groups around around Seattle. But I mean they, they they had really intense critical race theory style like study sessions where you know everybody was trying to overcome their whiteness and you know they, they so they've been operating for a while. But that that sounds an awful lot like a North Korean struggle session to me. But you know. What do I know? Oh yeah. No, no. And and it was. And I I mean like, you know, my girlfriend at the time was pretty into it. And I went to like their their introductory sessions. And it was you know, some of the exercises were a little bit pressury and kinda I mean, frankly, culty, you know, in 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 ways that were really designed to be. And then, you know, maybe to select people who who would get even more into it. And so that was that was pretty popular among the leftists um, who who still occupied Cap Cap Hill, and you know there even still there were a lot of those. I mean, I went to a meetup of some tech people in 20, 2013. Was that when Snowden stuff came out? Um, sounds about right. Yeah, I don't, so there, I don't there, recall. I mean, everything. I know, right? It, it could have been last year, and it was still thirty years ago at this point. Yeah. So, so I think it was 2013. The Stone and stuff came out, and there was a big meetup of of tech people at an anarchist coffee shop. And in retrospect, these were like ancoms specifically. But you yeah, know, 
that would be what you would find out there more than likely. Yeah, although I have seen ANCAP stickers out, so oh, so sure. who knows? I'm not saying that they're not there. I know a couple well, that would be at least quasi-ish that out there, but they're definitely the minority of people identifying themselves as anarchists. Yeah, so I mean, the I guess the the long and short of it is there there was this kind of an old left culture, old left. I mean, like '90s aughts pre Gamergate left that that existed in this area. But I think it was, you know, definitely transitioning to more of the, the post Gamergate, somewhat identitarian left. And um, so, so there are a lot of those people who are living. Um, the, the, so directly south of Capitol Hill, this is all pretty inside baseball, but I'm, I think it is interesting just seeing what, what the local scene was like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so directly south of Capitol Hill is an area called the central district and the Central District was much more of a historically black neighborhood. And there have been a lot of fights recently about the gentrification of the Central District because it is pretty close to downtown and property values have been skyrocketing. And, and you know, there's been a lot of gentrification. And in particular, there, there were weed stores that opened out there that I, I think, um, I don't remember, that, so the, the chain is called Uncle Ike's. And it's definitely a chain of weed stores. And, you know, the, the guy who managed to get it was, you know, some some kind of a vaguely scummy local businessman. And um, what? What a who, shock. Who, I know, right? Shocking. And so, so there are a lot of Black-led protests against Uncle Ike's, which, you know, is sort of a leftist fissure. If, if, you know, you have legal legal weed on one hand and, you know, gentrification on the other hand. And so there, there were some strange conflicts that fell out of that. But... Basically, you had you had this like classic white leftist stuff going on that was more located in Cap Hill, and then in the Central District, um, I think there was much more minority activism. Mm-hmm. And so, those my hunch is that those are the two groups that fed a lot of the protests here over the summer. And overall, I mean, they, they were intense. You know, there were there were police cars on fire sure. downtown, and there were there were probably eight or 10 days when you really wouldn't have wanted to go to downtown Seattle. Um, but for the most part, I mean, the, the autonomous zone was just, you know, look, I know it was, it's amazing. Um, you know, that was restricted to a few blocks across the lake and, you know, my neighborhood didn't is, is close. So I live in Queen Anne, which is somewhat more of a hoity toit. I don't live in like really expensive part of Queen Anne, which is on top of the hill. But I live adjacent to it. And, you know, there were there were protests probably like a mile and a half south of where I live, but nothing even approached my part of the my part of the city. And, you know, there were there were occasionally little protest groups that would go out to the rich areas like Mercer Island, but not the really rich areas. So so Mercer Island is uh is an island in the middle of Lake Union or not Lake Union, but Lake Washington, which is this very large lake um, that goes through the Seattle metro area. And Mercer Island is an island and they're, they're like low key rich and they go out of their way to keep the riffraff off the island. Um, (laughs) But they're not the really rich area, which is across the lake. And it's called Medina. It's where all of the billionaires live. And the protesters did not have the courage of their convictions to go and protest in there because it's aggressively patrolled by private security. There's like one road going in and out like everything is on camera. It, it seems like kind of a security help, but also if you're, you know, a billionaire, I guess probably want some of that. 
So um, they went to protest on Mercer Island, but but didn't make it over to the actual rich area. Um, but you know, I mean, like for most people in the city, it it, it was nothing big. And I mean, I think just just being really explicit about it, I I think in a city like Seattle, the potential for protests like this to grow is pretty limited, just because property values have risen so much over the last you know twenty years and somewhat incrementally and then very quickly that if you're not somewhat rich, it's unlikely that you're going to be living in the city itself because it's just too fucking expensive. And so I think all of the the people who are likely to just sort of be fuel, you know, not the spark, not the people who are active, active anarchists on a regular basis and the like burn everything down sense, but, but the people who you would really need to get a massive, massive protest that would right. really prevent, present a risk to like say my security there are just not enough of those adjacent people who might form up into a mob if it got really big because they've all been pushed out of the city. So that makes sense. <clears throat> I mean, like I said, you know, I don't, I obviously don't know. I, I avoid, avoid large cities as if there were pandemics in them all the time anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, I have actually been out to Seattle recently though, because my sister lives out in the area. Oh, nice. And, and so I was out there last September, but that is the first time I've been out there ever. And I'm probably not going to be going there very frequently after. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's not my environment, man. I, I, when I was younger, I lived in Minneapolis for a little while and I didn't oh, mind yeah. that too much. Yeah. That's where I went to culinary school. In fact, it was out in twin cities. Oh, okay. And, um, Oh shit! I give me one sec. Sure. Oh. <laughs> Gross. For the listeners who just heard him exclaim, I'm pretty sure Pen- Penelope just oh, threw up on the floor someplace. Come here. Let's look at your butt. Oh nope. No, you don't. Okay. Nope. If you didn't hear that, something about poop. Figured y'all should know that because it's pretty damn comical. <sighs> Sorry, I'll cut that. The cat um, had some. That's right. I was narrating to the listeners. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Well, maybe I won't cut it. I'll I'll find out what just happened later. Um. Anyway, everything's fine here. She's she's an older cat, and sometimes she has she has trouble like completely. Anyway. Um, so, uh, you're telling me culinary school in Minneapolis. Yeah. So I went to culinary school in Minneapolis. You know, I didn't mind the city there too much, but as I've gotten older, I've just, man, (laughs) cities just aren't my thing. I live in a town of less than 600 people now and I absolutely love it. (laughs) It is fantastic. Yeah. So, so that's actually something we're planning on talking about. So, um, how, how specific do you want to be? I mean, I know the geography of North Dakota fairly well. Uh, I'm not going to t- say what town I live in. But okay. Beyond that, we'll I'll, I'll talk in any gen- you know, and if it, I, and if there's something specific about a town that I'm not living in, sure, I'll talk about that, no problem. But yeah. But just your general situation, you're you're in Western North Dakota, right? Uh, North Central. North Central. Okay. Oh man, so that's that's pretty. Uh, it feels that feels fairly 
yeah, remote. I mean, Minot's yeah. kind of up there, although I think about that as being more west. It's still technically north central. Okay. Um, barely, but it is. Uh, for anybody that's familiar with all of the, the oil boom that happened not that terribly long ago out here, Minot was sort of on the extreme eastern edge of all of the Bakken oil shale insanity. And yeah, insanity is the perfect word for all of that when it happened. Holy shit, that was crazy. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I mean, just for those of you who don't know about this, um, North Dakota has been primarily agricultural for for ever. most of the last ever, ever really. And there were, I mean, there there was oil drilling out in the western part of the state for also since forever, but it wasn't huge. I mean, I remember going out there as a kid. And, were, and like seeing the oil rigs, but they weren't. Yeah, there, there. It basically has been two big oil booms in Western North Dakota. The first one was in the, I want to say about the '60s, '50s or '60s, something like that, where yeah. they made their first initial discoveries, and that that's in the western part near Williston, uh, Watford City that kind of area, the the north arm of the Missouri River and Lake Sakakawea, if you're at all familiar with North Dakota geography. And for most of your listeners, I would not expect you to be. That's perfectly okay. <laughs> yeah. Being, it's I, the, the northwestern quadrant of the, of the state. Yep. And so that was about the, like I said, I want to say it was like the 50s, 60s, something like that. I don't remember. Might have even been as late as the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of petered out fairly quickly because there's not a lot of readily available oil in the western part of the state. Yeah. But then along comes hydraulic fracturing, aka fracking. And that's when the Bakken oil shale goes apeshit bananas. So that's eastern Montana, western North Dakota. Uh, northwest North Dakota, northeast Montana, um, what is it? That'd be southeast Saskatchewan, and a little, uh, I don't think Manitoba had any of it. So it's basically those three areas two, two American states, one Canadian province. And when they discovered how to frack, that's when they started being able to get the oil out of these areas. And yeah. there's a shitload down there. So while so, oil was sky high in price, not back in what, well, 2011. I know it was 2011 when some of this was really going on because I was living in Minot at the time. And 2011 is when a quarter of the city went underwater. But uh, Oh, jeez. Oh, man. North Dakota floods. Yeah. I well, This was the Suris River specifically. like, And it was... It was bad. It was like two years of really, really heavy, wet snowfalls. Uh-huh. Uh, the summer in between them was very rainy. So when that second snowfall hit, it was just yep. like, yeah, it's going to flood. There, there, yeah. There's nothing we can do about it. In fact, we're going to have to let the water go through the dams because otherwise the dams will burst. There's too much. Yep. Yeah, classic. I, so, I, was in, I was in Grand Forks in 97. So yeah. I, I know. That's where you were when you said you left sometime after a flood. And it was and you didn't say where. I was like, I think I know where that was. Yep. Yeah. We stuck it out. We stuck it out a little while after that. But I mean, ultimately, it was like city. City was pretty changed. Oh yeah, it was. It's 
it really only finished recovering from that flood that was what almost 30 years ago now yeah like maybe oh my god yeah five, six years ago Oof. like they were still recover i mean most of most of the recovery was done just like most of the recovery from the damage caused by the flood in minot in 2011 is done at this point you know they yeah. they've torn down the the destroyed buildings they've built up most of the the new flood protection and there's been a lot of beefing up of flood protection like massively you know they've gotten most of that done already that kind of thing but there's still a little bit here and there that they're working on because it just takes time and money so yeah okay so uh so i'm i'm endlessly interested in in like floods and and like the destruction of cities but uh so the the oil thing so yeah. um so what i what I remember is that there, the boom was nuts. I mean, there wasn't a ton of infrastructure out in West, Western North Dakota, but you know, suddenly like homes were going for these outrageous rates for oil workers who were were relocating out there. And my, my favorite, my favorite anecdote is that, um, you know, it was all these oil workers were, were men basically. And so there's 98% of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this huge gender imbalance and there's almost this kind of wild west sort of thing where strippers from oh. Las, Las Vegas could, oh, yeah. could could fly out to Williston and just working over the weekend make make an entire month's wages because you know it was the middle of nowhere there were so many guys and not there were too. no women. Minot did the same thing. So <laughs> I actually worked at one of the strip clubs in Minot there for a little while. No shit. I was a bouncer. I mean, I'm six foot tall, like 250 pounds. I'm a big guy. Yeah, yeah. Kind of scary looking. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, so I I worked at one of those for a little while there. And, yeah, there were girls from literally all over the country that came in all the time. And and on, like, a Monday night in North Dakota, a bad night for a lot of them was walking away with, like, four or five hundred dollars. Nice. And that was from, God, what time did we even open? We opened at, well, the bar opened at five. The girls didn't actually start working until like six or seven. Uh-huh. And at the time, bar close was one o'clock in the morning. So this was like five hours worth of work. $100 an hour. And, and, and and, you know, on a Monday, there was probably only maybe half a dozen girls working, something like that. It wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. <clears throat> but this, so they were still taking turns, though. So it's not like one girl's up there the whole fucking night. It was, you know, four, five, six of them over the course of five hours. And like a bad night would be like four or five hundred dollars on a Monday. That's, and we were on the edge of all that. The Willis, the girls working in Williston, from what I had heard, because some of the girls that worked at the the club that I was at in Minot also worked out in Williston. Some, a lot of them actually stopped working out in Williston because it was just so fucking insane and kind of dangerous. Yes. But yeah. some of them were saying like, yeah, they they could easily, in middle of the week, walk away with well over a thousand dollars in a night. That's amazing. Yeah, and about weekends were even wilder. Yeah. Oh, oh God. So I, I can only imagine what it was like in Williston, just knowing what it was like in Minot. So, because I mean, 
there were some yeah. guys, you know, that we would see every weekend. And these were oil field guys and, and usually not just like your your average roughneck either. Like they were supervisors and shit, so they were rolling in the money. Yeah. Because they'd work like two, three weeks on, get like two weeks off. And when I say two, three weeks on, I mean basically they were working like sixteen hours a day for three weeks straight every day. Yeah. Yeah. So they got a ridiculous amount of money just as their normal wage, and then they'd be pulling in you know, like 60 hours of overtime every week. Like they were just working insane amounts. So, you know, there, there'd be guys that I'd see, you know, again, they'd be gone for like two weeks and then they'd be back, you know, every Friday and Saturday night and they'd drop like that one dude would drop maybe like a grand each night. Wow. It's just that one guy. It's not counting up with the other like 150 fucking drunken horny oil field workers in there <laughs> yeah man so like okay i i had not known that you had been a bouncer at a strip club and that feels yes. like a kind of like rarefied <laughs> rarefied career so like what 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 should everybody know about i don't know what what secret knowledge do you have as a result of working as a bouncer at a strip club oh man that's a really broad question um like like are there are there major misconceptions about strip clubs or bouncers that you think people have? It's hard for me to say being where I was because I mean yeah. the, the thing we have to remember is I was still in Minot, North Dakota. Like a lot of the people, like it, it's a different environment out here, man. You know, yeah. I don't know what it would be like if I was in Seattle or Minneapolis or New York or something like that. Like people just have a different attitude. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, it's hard for me to say, like, if there's anything, just general, general, don't be a dickhead, and you're going to have probably one of the best times of your life if you ever go to a strip club, or any other club for that matter, people. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. And uh, no matter what it looks like, most of the bouncers probably don't want to get in a fight. But they're also not going to really be that scared about getting into one. So maybe don't pick a fight with the bouncer. Do people do that? Why do occasionally. people pick? Yeah, occasionally. I wonder. No one ever picked one with me. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I to be fair, one, mean. One, one of the guys I bounced with, he was a. He was a dickhead. I mean, yeah. he was a great guy and I loved him, but like he had a big old chip on his shoulder and he portrayed that as soon as he opened his mouth. Yeah. So people kind of wanted to fight him kind of regular. Yeah. But I get I, that. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, like maybe one thing I'm curious about is there is a certain type of guy who likes to get into fights there are and, and, and a lot of them do find their way into doing things like being a bouncer being some kind of private security <laughs> being oh, <cops>. really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i but but i was gonna that i was actually going in that direction i was thinking like you could almost view bouncers as a service mm-hmm. like for this type of guy right like if you want to get in a fight maybe you don't want to get in a fight with like you know, someone else at the bar because, 
you know, maybe they don't have to play by the rules. So you have a bouncer and the bouncer is a person with whom you can safely pick a fight. Maybe they're going to lay you flat, but they're probably not going to knife you because, you know, they're working. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that probably is a big part of it is, is there's a lot less, there's a lot less chaos involved with picking a fight with a bouncer. Yeah. And if, I mean, if, if you've never been in a fight, I've been in a couple, not just when I was bouncing, um, they're kind of chaotic and yeah. they're a lot more dangerous than people think they are. Yeah. So, you know, it, you kind of, you kind of reduce some elements of the danger by picking a fight with somebody like that. Yeah. Some, I mean, let's face it, it very rarely are small guys hired to be bouncers. And if they are, excuse me, the chances are pretty good. You don't want to pick a fight with the little bouncer. Yeah. Chances are he's probably a lot more scrappy than the big guys. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be right up front with it. It's like my size and my appearance helps dissuade people from getting into fights with me and has my entire life. Like I said, I'm, I'm current. Well, currently I'm like six foot tall and about 270 some odd pounds. But at the time I was six foot tall and like 240, 250, like that's still not a small individual. No, no. And I've I've always had the, the big facial hair and I frequently have had long hair. So it's like, I look kind of mountain man-ish most of the time. So it's just like, you know, I'm good. It's like, thank you. I don't really want to get in a fight. Yeah, and there's it's it's interesting actually. I mean, for for people, well, I mean, you can, you can go and look at Michael's profile picture, but I mean, you really do have big guy energy. Where, um, so Moon's dad is like this too. He's, I mean, he's enormous. He's like six five, six six, and just just big. And he's, I mean, it's it's wonderful seeing him holding our daughter. You know, he's this enormous oh, guy with sure. a tiny, tiny baby girl and just totally in love with her. But he, I, I mean, he spent a lot of time, you know, doing martial arts and like kind of fighting. I think he was pretty scrappy when he was younger. But you can see that he's grown as, as he's gotten older. He's gotten very good at managing how much space he takes up and mm-hmm. what kind of vibe he's presenting to everyone. And in particular, he has this kind of Clark Kentish way of presenting himself under normal circumstances where, you know, he probably weighs 270, maybe 300 pounds, but he doesn't, he doesn't actually take up that much space in the room. Mm -hmm. But, but Moon has stories about times when, you know, something has happened and, you know, he's needed to act very quickly and very decisively. And it's like, he just grows and takes up the entire room instantly. And you have that same kind of vibe where there's, there's kind of a control of, the way that you're presenting yourself and like how much space you're choosing to take up. If you're not hyper aggressive, if you're not a hyper aggressive asshole, which as aggressive as I can be, I'm not hyper aggressive. If you're not a hyper aggressive asshole and you're a big guy, you just sort of learn to do that because, because people react to, to very big men that way. Like yeah. one of the, there is a guy I know or I knew back then, I don't even remember his name now. I haven't seen him in probably 15 years. And he was this big black guy. 
you know, he was probably four or five inches taller than me, had 30, 40 pounds on me. Not a ton of it was fat. Like he was yeah. a big man. And he did the same thing. Like he did the same thing that I do. And he did the same thing you're describing Moon's dad does. And like, if you didn't know he was there, you might not remember he was there unless he wanted you to know he was there. And then there was no ignoring it. Like yeah. you knew he was there. He was mad and you better apologize or you might die. <laughs> and yeah. and that's just one of those things that you kind of learn because you know, even for, for someone like me, who's not exceptionally tall, like I'm taller than the average guy. Sure. But not by a huge amount. You know what average male height is like five foot nine or something like that. So I've got something like three like that, inches yeah. on the average, you know, not a whole hell of a lot in height, but to, to like women being one thing because they're so much shorter on average. Again, yeah. Exceptions obviously exist, but you know, by being so much physically larger, it can very easily accidentally make people be afraid of you. And if you don't want somebody to be afraid of you, you have to find a way to kind of metaphysically shrink that down until you need it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all this talk about stuff like man spreading and so on. And I think that in a lot of ways is completely wrong. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I would say I'm a fairly average sized guy. I mean, I'm five, 10 and right now I'm 180. Ideally I'm like 165. And that's <laughs> 165. That's like 12 stone for those of you who are who are, <laughs> who are English. But like um <laughs> a little bit more actually, but wait, like, no. Yeah. I think 168 is 12 stone, is that right? I don't remember. Is it yeah. 14 pounds? So Yeah. Yeah, something like that. It's real close. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, like even with, there are certain circumstances where you can really project what size you have and, and sort of fill a room. But, but like, I, I don't know. There's, I think the training that men get just tacitly and somewhat quietly throughout puberty is how to just rein in your size and how to rein in your presence kind of in a, in like a reverse Alexander technique thing where you, you're sort of, I, I don't know, it feels like a management thing. And so if you see a guy who's like spreading his legs on a subway, maybe that's remarkable just because he's not quite paying attention and reining himself in as much as he might be able to do. Well, and, and also, that's, that's just striking, you know? Also with that specific example, I mean, testicles are a thing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, yeah. Like, it's just uncomfortable to sit with your legs close together when you've got that bit dangling there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's oh, male no, physiology. <laughs> Which is why I always get annoyed. Yeah, it's like, so, we are physically built different. I'm sorry. I'll take up as little room as I can, but I'm not going to crush myself so you can have yeah, an extra inch place. <laughs> Yeah. And also, I mean, like, men are just a lot larger, like statistically, right? Like, yes, there are enormous women. I respect you. 
like large there are also super small men yeah absolutely yeah but i mean at the same time like i think i i wonder if there's an extent to which women just tend to not be aware of like certain i don't know issues of presentation and size that the men kind of take in tacitly and i think men are not aware of them either just because a lot of it is i mean like unless unless you're in a profession like being a bouncer where you actually have to actively manage the way that you're presenting your your size and presence like maybe you don't think about it that much and i don't know there there are all these stories i mean again i think from from women or, or you know, from 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 people who had a female like hormonal cocktail, like going on to testosterone, and just not knowing how to manage this stuff because, like, you know, they they never went through these like long tacit lessons about what exactly you're able to do and what you're not able to do and what you have to mm-hmm. control, and and suddenly you know you get hit with testosterone, it's like bam, and and what do you yeah. do now? Welcome to the club. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dudes rock. Um. So shit. They so do. uh. Um, so, so what's the current state of the oil fields? Uh, like looping way back to that. I mean, there's this giant uh, boom and yeah, so the giant boom. And then a- as we know in a lot of ways, in a good thing, in a good way, or is a good thing. Um, the oil prices did slowly begin to come down. Yeah. And as the, the one problem with the oil shale out in the Bakken formation is it's very expensive to harvest from. Mm. So once the oil dropped below a certain price, and I don't recall where it was at this juncture, I think it was somewhere around $40, they basically were starting to lose money to, to pump it. So yeah. as, as, the oil play, as the oil price was going down, just because it naturally would as the supply begins to, to build back up again. <clears throat> Welcome to Economics 101. Yep. You know, um, they they slowed down production. Um, they stopped. You know, they first stopped doing more drilling and building of pumps and so forth. And then they then they stopped. You know, they they put pauses on some of the pumps and things like that. And some of the workers went. Well, most of the workers have now gone someplace else. Yeah. Now again, with the oil prices starting to slowly climb back up. They're starting to reactivate some of those wells. Um, they're starting to, you know, kind of look at okay, should we start drilling some more? That kind of thing. I don't know if they will, but so it, it's kind of building itself back up from where it had fallen off to slowly at this moment. If we yeah. get some kind of weird her- big spike in price it'll i'm sure they'll ramp that shit right back up again yeah and how's how's all this affected western north dakota i mean it used to be like pretty empty pretty pretty quiet and it sounds like there was a boom and then kind of oh yeah bust after that it's like so, what is what does that do to a society it does all sorts of weird things um the the one other city that i mentioned earlier when i was describing the area watford city uh-huh. That that's a town eh, maybe in half hour to an hour away from Williston, mm-hmm. and it's it's very much a boom town in a lot of ways. Like it's a, one of the bigger boom towns, but I mean it's it's one of these things that 
you you experience this sudden glut of people coming in. And so you start building up to accommodate them. And then they leave. So then you start getting quasi-ghost town effects, but in towns that are still actively being inhabited by the people that have lived there the whole lives anyway. Yeah. So it, it gets real weird. Now, because of the increase in the oil field production and stuff like that, um, they they didn't ever really drop back down to their pre-boom levels. But mm-hmm. some of the the new stuff is kind of like half, uh, you know, unoccupied and stuff like that. Yeah. Though the, one of the wildest things that I thought, so I, I actually lived out in Williston as well here for a little while, four or five years ago, something like that. Five years ago? Yeah, five years ago. Um, and one of the things I thought was actually the coolest is there is a, for Western North Dakota, bear this in mind, there's a surprisingly large, like, Caribbean Islander population that's moved there. No shit, what? Yeah. I was yeah. not aware and, of that. I mean, so, Williston's current population, I think, is somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, 30,000 people. Okay, so it's not a very big place. It's smaller than most major city suburbs. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, bear that in mind. But there's probably, at least when I was out there in, uh, I guess it was only four years ago, because it was 2018 that I was out there. So when I was out there four years ago, there was probably like three, four hundred recent migrants from various Caribbean islands. Huh. I mean, to the point where, um, not that far away from downtown Williston, Somebody had or- opened a little like Caribbean and West African grocer. Man, how how is that going? I I mean, like for them in particular, I guess. I mean, like going from the Caribbean to North Dakota. I for, I guess for those of you who don't know, North Dakota is fucking cold. It's only in the winter. Only, only in the only, winter. It gets pretty only, hot only in summer. the winter. Yeah, okay, it gets very hot in the summer. But in the winter, which lasts like eight months, it gets it real cold. It does not. <laughs> it does not last eight months. It's from like late November to about early March. It's like five. Okay. But I mean like <laughs> during that winter. It, it gets very cold. It gets very cold. And the, the other thing is that the – I mean North Dakota, the joke that I remember is is that – it's it's so flat you can watch your dog running away for three days, and it only depends on that. Really depends on where you're at in North Dakota. Yeah, West, Western North Dakota. Near, so yeah, out near Williston, it's very, like very foothill. Well, I mean, it's the northern part of the Badlands. Like it's all yeah. foothills and bluffs and ravines and like it, it's short canyon land. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's yeah. much different. It, yeah, but eastern part of the state was first oh, plowed flat, flat by a glacier, and and then super at the bottom flat. of a lake. So it's it's incredibly flat. I mean, the the sort of thing that you, if you've never been there, if you've never really seen this kind of flat step country, uh, step country that doesn't seem yeah. quite right. Yeah, it's I mean, fairly like, accurate. I mean, it's not got the elevation that you would normally think of for step country, but it's it's close enough. 
if if you dropped a Mongol horde there, they would they'd, do fine. Yeah, they'd, they'd feel pretty well. at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'd probably actually comment on how temperate the winters are. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there is that. But uh, no, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, the winters would the, the the winter before the flood in particular. I remember that there wasn't a full week of school between like December and March because they kept canceling it for either snow or straight up for cold. There, I mean, there, there's one day when it hit, I think it was maybe negative 40 in terms of temperature. And when they adjusted it for wind chill, it was at like negative 90. And just, yeah. just something absurd like that. Well, and I, then re- the I wind remember. Is the thing, it's so flat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. the. So I lived in Minot growing up. So we almost never had school canceled because of snow because I was in the city. So they had pretty decent snow removal, blah, blah, blah. Like, it almost never happened. The one thing I do remember, there were three days when I was in, like, third or fourth grade. Where, in a row, where we had school canceled because of the cold. Because, once you adjusted for wind chill, it was anywhere between negative 95 and negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Yep. Adjusted for wind chill. So it was like, it is far too dangerous to go outside. Stay in your homes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's the other thing that we should be clear about. When, when school is canceled in North Dakota, it's because of an act of God kind of weather. I mean, all of these towns have tons of snow plows, tons of snow. In the like, cities. We are used to, in the cities, yeah. Because like, the rural schools cancel school all the time because, you know, some of their students live 15, 20 miles away from snow on a dirt road. So it's yeah. like, there's not a plow coming by for two days if you're lucky. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, they that's cancel fair. it all the time. Like the inside the city schools, so that we're talking uh, Minot, Bismarck, Grand Forks, Fargo, Dickinson, and Williston, basically, are about the only places. You know, those, they, it, it, is, it is bad if they are canceling school. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. But like, um, so, so there's this Caribbean population. It's like, how, how do you go from living on a semi-tropical Island to, to living in in this place? Yeah. I don't know that it was wild to me when I noticed it because, you know, at first I had moved out there. So I had moved out to Williston because I had gotten a job as an executive chef at a restaurant out there. Yeah. And, um, it was at a restaurant in a little hotel there in Williston. So, and for, for the while I was actually living in the hotel. So I didn't go out very much at all because I lived in the building I worked in. Yeah. So I only went out once a week to get groceries basically. So I didn't see a whole hell of a lot because I would also be going out usually at night or, you know, late or something like that. Yeah. And it was wild to me, not because I, when I first saw how many of them there were, it was at like Walmart or something there in Williston. And there was just, I looked around, I'm like, there's an awful lot of black people out here. This is Williston. What yeah. the hell are you all doing here, man? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's the other thing about this North Dakota. This is wild for this place. Yeah. Like, I, I, I guess that's the other thing of note, like. There are very, or at least historically, have been very few people in North Dakota who are not white. Not because of any particular... With the exclusion of Native Americans. There With are the still quite a few of them. Yes. 
there are lots of Native Americans. I, I should make that. that that's a very important point. Yeah. But and and in fact, there there was a lot of like pretty active Native culture around oh, around Grand Forks when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know about Grand Forks, but I know in the state in general, there absolutely still is. Yeah. Um, I yeah. know the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation has powwows on a regular basis. I'm pretty sure the the northern bit is the, the Standing Rock does as well. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Like, the, it, very, very active cultures out here still, and which is fantastic. But yeah, so, like he was saying, it's if it's not a white person or a Native American, it's very rare to see them out in North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. So... It, also, especially once you get away from the Air Force bases. Oh, there's, yeah. one in, there's an Air Force base in Grand Forks and in Minot. So in either of those two towns, it's not terribly unusual. But as soon as you leave those two places, it's very strange. Just because there's just generally not very many of them out here. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. generally very many people out here, period. But <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's true. The important, an important source of diversity in North Dakota at least historically was air force wives. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, I had a, um, an English teacher in high school, a fantastic English teacher who, whose mom was Japanese and dad was, you know, white air force and, and he grew up in Grand Forks. Um, but you know, it was, it was still otherwise, I mean like the initial, the initial immigrant populations were overwhelmingly Scandinavian and, you know, some German Scandinavian or Germanic depending. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, so last thing, I guess. Um, so you went to culinary school yes. and you recently got, uh, what was it? An oven? I can't remember. I remember, uh, mixer. a couple of a mixer. Okay. Yes. A commercial grade mixer. <laughs> okay. So, so what are you up to with baking and, and like, how do you get into this? It, it, so, it makes a lot of sense. You have, you have strong baker vibe. Yeah. So how I got into it is very simple. Uh, I hate working for other people. Yeah. So I was like, okay, what skills do I have that I can use to make money for myself and not somebody else? Mostly cooking. I mean, I went to culinary school. I've been working in restaurants and things like that for like 20 years for the most part. Like it's what I've done as an adult, generally. Yeah. Speaking. There's been a, a little spurts here and there where I've done other things, but generally speaking, I've worked in restaurants, and generally speaking, it's been in kitchens. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, these are things I can do. So I started a personal chef business that was going okay, and then COVID. You know, not a lot yeah. of people generally want you going into their house to cook for them while they're being fear mongered to and the like yep. about this disease. Uh, so that kind of fell through a little bit, but I mean, this was the baking thing was something that I had kind of was kind of on a long-term plan anyway, <clears throat> because as with just about everywhere, but especially in a, in a rural agricultural type of state, like farmers markets are huge. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is something I could probably do and go to the farmer's market. I, you know, so I, I looked up cottage food laws in North Dakota because while I don't care 
if what I sell might be illegal. Oh my god! Are you fucking kidding me? Like, there. So, is are these laws about like what you can cook in your house and then go and sell? Yes, every state has them. Jesus. Yeah. So hate it. Yeah. mm -hmm, Me too. But uh, North Dakota's, I, I have to say from looking at other states as well, just for curiosity's sake, North Dakota is pretty relaxed with it. Like, there are some things you're like, mm, you're not allowed to do that, and you're not allowed to do this, but otherwise, whatever. The one thing that very much so confuses me with some of the, the laws here is you're allowed to use chicken in, like, frozen dishes, and, and you can sell frozen foods. Without any kind of licensing, they just have to remain frozen uh-huh. and have, you know, um, clear instructions on how to eat them safely. Which you know, fine. I'd want to do that anyway because yep. I okay. don't want my customers to get sick. So fine, and you can right. use chicken. And you can use eggs. You can't use other meats. And what? I'm very confused okay. about that. Yeah, exactly. You have to have special licensing to sell beef and so forth for some fucking reason. I wonder if that's I like don't understand protection. it. I, probably. Like, yeah, it probably okay. is. Because, again, it's the North Prairie. Like, cattle is one of the big things that get raised out here. You yeah. know, we raise soybeans, canola, wheat, and cows. Basically. <laughs> yeah. So, Potatoes, too. Uh, yeah, At least Red River the Valley. where you used to live. The Red River grows just about everything. Because yeah. the Red River Valley is incredibly fertile. Yeah, The rest of the uh, states is... I mean, it's fertile as long as you don't venture too far outside what would be kind of native plant life, basically. Yeah, yeah. Red River yeah, Valley. Your, your cereal great. grains and things like that are very, very effective out here, but... A lot of other things, not so much. Yeah. So, okay. So, like, you're complying with these laws, fine. Laws. So, so I, I basically, I went looking to see, okay, what can I make to where I don't have to worry about the fucking health department coming and giving me a citation? Right. And bread, of course, was one of the big ones on there. It's like, great, because that's one of the things that's going to be easiest for me to make transport and sell anyway. So... Perfect. Like that was always kind of on my plan as, as an addition to the personal chef gig that I was starting. It's kind of looking like it's going to end up going the other way around now, and the personal chef thing might be the side hustle with the, uh, with some of this other stuff potentially being the bigger money maker. But eh, whatever, fuck it. Really, I don't care. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I mean, like, okay. You're you're making bank with baked goods. I mean, like that. Well, that's amazing. I wouldn't say bank, but I'm making decent enough money. Uh, an average week for me last year. So bear in mind, this was the summer of COVID. Um, an average week weekend appearance for me at the farmers market was about two hundred dollars. Yeah. Which in North Dakota goes a long way, if I remember. Correctly. Goes a very long way. Well, I mean, like we had mentioned earlier, you were saying, you know, some of the the nice houses, like just regular ass houses in Seattle, are going for like a million or two. So, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I recently moved out to my tiny ass town in 
that I'm not going to name because it's a very yep. small town. So it'd be very easy yeah, to find it if you wanted to. Don't do it. Uh, but very small town. It is on 3.3 acres. Okay. Yeah. 3.3 acres. And it is a, what is it? The two or three bedroom ranch house, uh-huh. ranch style house. Just guess how much we paid for it. Um, 200,000. Oh, much, much lower. 110. Holy shit. And, and here's the kicker. This thing had been on the market for almost two years by the time we bought it. That's amazing. That's, that's a little bit like liminal warmth going and buying a chunk of desert land and yeah, just basically. like setting up her RV out there. I have no idea. How, I, maybe I do know how much she paid for it, but like, couldn't have been much. No. And good for her, by the way. I've, I've been yeah. seeing her talking about that, and that is fantastic. I'm just like, you lunatic, I love you. <laughs> she's, she's, she's a fascinating person. Um, yeah, okay, so that's actually really interesting. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk by tech people. I mean, now that you can go remote and work mm-hmm. remote, like typically the deal is you can move wherever you want as long as it has an internet connection and work out there, and they just adjust your pay accordingly, typically. So, although not always, but typically, so like, you know, the, the high pay areas are like Bay area or New York or Seattle or whatever. And, yeah, and then you it can cost five bajillion dollars to live there. Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, we, we have, well, you, you can sort of see it. I mean, like we have a nice apartment. It's got two bedrooms. The, the bedrooms are fine, but the, I mean, like this main area here is, is the really nice part. And it's, it's maybe like 1100 square feet. I imagine we are paying like six times as much in rent as you are, you know, like c- converting from the mortgage. Like it's, oh, it's there, there's I, the, here, here's the kicker on it though, actually. So as I have not been shy to discuss elsewhere, um, for a variety of reasons, um, I actually do live with my parents and I'm not even ashamed about that because family oh, yeah. is huge to me anyway. So I couldn't care less. Uh, <laughs> but so we, we moved out here, we sold the house in Minot and then mm. bought this. There is no mortgage. Oh, you just bought it outright. Mm-hmm. The, the sale of the old house paid off that mortgage, bought this one outright and left us some left. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> I mean, it's tempting, you know, I, it's, I, I don't exactly want to just like move out of the city. And I think there's good reason for me to keep working and, sure. and having this career and like socking money away. But there's also an appeal to just kind of pulling up, pulling up stakes and like moving somewhere more remote. As with everything there, there's advantages and disadvantages to it. Like, you know, we did live in Minot. Minot's not a huge place, but it's a town of, well, it's, it's by every definition, it is a city. You know, it, it's a city of like 50, 55,000 people. So it's not nothing. Like, it's not huge, but it's not nothing. You know, and there, and there are a lot of things there that we don't have access to easily now. I mean, we're not, it's not like we live 10 hours away from the nearest city like that. We, you know, it's well within a fairly short drive. You know, but again, like I live in a town of less than 600 people. There are literally two restaurants in the entire town. 
Uh, there are also literally two bars. That's it. Uh, there is no movie theater. There is no stage theater. There is no... I mean, there's a little bit of, of retail shopping, but very little. Yeah. You know, the, the grocery store in this town is the equivalent of a like neighborhood market because that's pretty much all this, this town is like, it's, it's a, a decent sized neighborhood in most other places. Okay. So this one, I guess the last thing um, I should get up and check on my wife and baby and not, not too long. But one thing that I do want to ask you, because I think most of my listeners are either international or like, I mean, generally coastal, right? Mm-hmm. But the kind of town and, or I mean like town, yeah, yeah, town's the right word that you're describing. I think it's probably pretty alien to, you know, most of the people who we interact with on Twitter, not everybody, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's like really rural and it seems like oh, a, yeah. a different kind of America than you usually get, especially say on the coasts, you know, I mean, again, I live in Seattle, it's a huge city and, and I, it's really one of the forefronts of everything, you know, with, with the, the sort of tech remaking of the entire economy. So I guess what I'm curious about is what are we missing out on in, in terms of experiences? Like what, what has life been like in a small town like this and how has it been changing in the last 10 years in, in a way that's different than you would see from, you know, like living in a city. And I, that I just completely assume is missed out entirely by say media narratives about what life in America is like. Mm-hmm. Well, as Big far question. as, yeah, no, 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 that's fine. And I'm going to try and do it as best, as good a justice as I can. Um, the, the easiest part to answer is what's it, what's the change has been like in the last 10 years. And that is very little. Um, the, when people describe, you know, talk about kind of in a poetic fashion about country living and rural living and, and how they, they say everything just kind of slows down and, and it's much simpler and blah, 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 that kind of thing. Like that's not really all that hyperbolic, you know, in this yeah. town, from what I'm able to tell, um, like everybody knows everybody. When, when I've been talking to people, uh, so the, the prime example, okay, like I, I announced on Twitter or mentioned on Twitter rather, you know, that I, I took a summer job nearby here at a, a nursery and, you know, and then talking to some of the people because a lot of them have been working at that nursery for 10 plus years. So I'm the new guy and obviously they want to get to know me. And, and first off, there's one of the, the things that I notice is very different from even a place like Minot is like the entire town becomes your community because there's nobody else around. Like the openness and friendliness is pretty much a universal in really like rural small towns. Like, Oh, you're new here. Well, Tell me about you because I am genuinely interested and I want to try and get to know you so you can be a part of this community with me that I happen to love. But, you know, so one of the things that I was getting to here is like when they were asking me, oh, you know, they asked me, okay, have you, when did you move here? Blah, blah, blah. You live in town, that kind of thing. 
And I told him, yeah, we do. Oh, where, where are you at? And the easiest way I have found to describe to people where I live is tell them the old previous buyer's names, house. Yes, yes, yes. And they go, oh, I know where that is. That's the place over there, right? Sure is. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, the old so-and-so you know? place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, where it, it's all... Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, because, you know, again, like, and now in this particular instance, like the the guy that owned this before was both a teacher and then later a principal at the school. So, I mean, he was more known maybe than, than your average person in town because a lot of them either had him as a teacher maybe when they were younger or had kids that were had him as a teacher or he was the principal for their kids or something like that. You know, so they knew they knew him through that. But still, it's it's just one of those things, like, because the community knows each other, like, they, it, it's just, it's a, it's a community in a, in a sense that I think most people don't really experience anymore. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's true. I, I sort of know the two people who live on either side of my apartment. And I have a couple of friends who live in different places in, in Seattle, but you know, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I know almost nobody in this city, you know, even in passing it is, it is quite atomized. And, you know, for the most part, unless I have some special connection with, you know, somebody who I've maybe known for years, I don't feel much obligation to keep in touch with everybody around me. You know, right. I, I hardly know my neighbors on, you know, five feet, five feet away from me you know, across the hall. And, you know, what you're describing really is quite a lot thicker, I think, mm-hmm. in, in well, sort of a community sense. Yeah. And I mean, another, another just kind of, I'm drawing a blank on the right word, but example, I guess, of, of how communities like these kind of knit themselves together to support one another. And, and this is a very common thing all over rural America is, you can take a look at something as simple and as, and I'm drawing a blank on the word again, prevalent. There we go. Prevalent and persistent across all towns everywhere as a fire department. Every place has one. This town's fire department is volunteer. Just mm. like so many other rural towns all over this country. It's a volunteer department. Plain and simple. Like, it doesn't receive hardly anything for funding, you know, because it's it's all people that get called in when they need to who have volunteered to do the work because they want to help keep their community safe. Yeah. You know, and, and that's another one of those things that I think just kind of perfectly illustrates one of those, in my eyes, key differences between larger and smaller communities. The larger ones, like you said, they're, they're very atomized in a lot of ways. Now, sure, you might have neighborhoods or something like that. You know, you can look at something like uh, something as, as quintessential as like New York's Harlem. Okay, that's a neighborhood. Uh-huh. It's got a 
pretty specific identity. A lot of the people in Harlem know each other, or at least did at one point, or at least that's the way the stories make it seem. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I don't know. I've never lived there. I have no desire to live there. I have no idea how much of this is true or bullshit, but at any rate, that's certainly the way it's made out (laughs) to seem. (laughs) So, you know, so you have examples of that in bigger cities, but for all intents and purposes, some of those neighborhoods like that are small communities that just happen to, instead of being surrounded by farmland, are surrounded by a city. Like, if somebody if somebody thinks that they're from Harlem, they'll tell you that they're from Harlem, not Manhattan, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. something like that. So, okay, here's a question that has emerged and is sort of burning me now. So, so you live in a very close knit community and I think you have a sense of like the atomization of other communities. Mm -hmm. When we talk about like our community on Twitter, do you think it falls somewhere in between those two extremes or is it off on another axis? That, huh? I think it's kind of I think it kind of has taken the physical community and made it kind of metaphysical. Yeah. Like I I I think a community of spirit kind of, yeah, basically. Like it it has taken to me, what to me anyway is some of the best parts of the small community, okay, and that is the the, for lack of a better word, brotherliness, you know the the support that we would have for one another, the you know just all that kind of thing that you would get in a small physical community like where I'm currently living, and has just shifted that into a slightly different realm but not really changed it. Yeah. You know, it It's still a very much so that same kind of, at least that's how it feels to me. You know, I, I'm sure other people would feel differently, but. Yeah, that's, that's really flattering actually. I mean, if you're making that kind of a comparison. It, it's, it's what I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I maybe take a little bit more stock into metaphysics and spirit spirituality things than a lot of other people. But to me, the spiritual well-being of a tight-knit physical community is probably one of the chief benefits to it. Yeah. Because... Have you read a, oh, go ahead. Uh, I think by Sebastian Euner. There's this this little book called Tribe, and it's it's okay. It's it might be worth reading. Have it's not. Um, yeah, there it was it was making the rounds a few years ago at least. I think it's I think it's weaker when it leans on certain social science and stronger when it just runs through some anecdotes and you can just kind of vibe through it, like how there's a kind of sustenance that you get from being in a community that especially is facing some amount of adversity. Which, I mean, yeah. frankly, like, a North Dakota winter is adversity. <laughs> yeah. 
perfect example, you know, we were talking about the extremes when we were kids and school being closed, but this was this past January, so three months ago. We had like a week and a half where the warmest actual temperature, so this doesn't adjust for wind chill, wind chill. Um, the warmest actual temperature I think we hit was like negative 30. Yeah. And then you start throwing in some of the wind and it just gets so much worse. Yep. Uh, I mean, for anyone, <clears throat> for anyone who has ever experienced frostbite, okay, imagine your frostbite and imagine it happening as soon as you step outside with exposed skin. That is what North Dakota winters do pretty much every year for at least a few days. Yep. Yeah, it's every the, the yeah, the the experience of walking in negative 30 degree weather, especially with wind, it's I I mean it's kind of like getting hit in the chest with a hammer. Mm-hmm. It's like Very you, much you so. breathe in and you just you can you can start to feel your alveoli start to like constrict. Shrink. Oh yeah. Yeah, it hurts to breathe outside. Like part of the reason a lot of people wear face masks up here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, because of the sure. winters and because it helps warm the air up that you're breathing just enough that it doesn't hurt to breathe. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess what I mean like from from your perspective of being more familiar with small communities um and then I really should go check on the baby. I mean she's fine, I'm sure, but but what what do you think are like things that we sh- could be doing differently that would make us function better? If anything. Find your community. Just because it it isn't physical doesn't mean it isn't a community. Um <laughs> and on a personal level at any rate like get the hell out of the cities occasionally like if you if you think it's worth your time to live there i'm not going to sit here and tell you that you shouldn't live in a city you know i can't stand it i do genuinely think humanity isn't built to live like that but i'm not going to try and make you see the way that i i do it like that's not my business it's not my place but man, getting the hell out of them from time to time, even if it's just a day trip to hike for a little while, man, it's a good idea. Like getting away from that noise, the, the actual physical noise, and then the the spiritual noise, the emotional noise, everything about it, just all of that every now and again is a good damn idea. And if you can do it with some of those people that you've made your community with, you should do that too. Because that just kind of reinforces those bonds that you've been forging anyway. And I do, however, encourage building actual physical community even inside a city if you're still living there. Like maybe it's just your neighborhood, maybe it's just your apartment block or building, apartment block building, whatever. Same difference. Same thing. 
<laughs> you know, maybe it's just your apartment block. Maybe it, I did it again. Maybe it's your, your neighborhood, whatever it is. You know, building that actual physical community is important too, because as much as spiritual health is important, so is your physical health. And it gets hard for everybody sometimes. There, there's always somebody that's going to need some assistance sometimes. And sometimes that person's going to be you. And so knowing that there are people that you can fall back on if you need it, man, it takes a huge load of worry off of you. Yeah. Huge load. I'm like there's, you know, I, I mean, if you're talking about stuff like that, there, there are all these – you know, prepper handbooks on like how to store some huge amount of food and like how to shoot guns. It's like, man, if there's a disaster, the thing that you're going to need most is knowing a lot of people and being able to work together mm-hmm. effectively and every, everything else is just going to be secondary. Absolutely. And also because, it's like, well, I was going to say, let's, let's take either of us as an example for the moment. Okay. So you've got your wife and a baby who in the, the event of a, a prepper scenario like we were just discussing the baby's not going to be much help and in fact the baby's going to be a hindrance but baby still needs to stay not saying she doesn't but yeah let's be real she's going to create some whole new issues you know and in my case it's me and my two senior citizen parents okay so we could have five months worth of food stored up and all of these guns and ammo and body armor, and we've got our own well, or you could have all these guns and ammo and food and water and all this shit stored. Okay, cool. There's two of you, or in my case, there's three of us. Uh, those aren't very good odds against a, an angry, hungry mob. Yeah. Now, however, <laughs> if you've got 15 buddies right there alongside of you, uh, them odds are pretty good. Yep. Yeah. It's like, man, power, consider the power of friendship as your chief asset during a disaster. Mm-hmm. And like, yep. even, even smaller scale stuff, right? Like the, like in, when, when Grand Forks was destroyed by a flood, you know, it made a big difference. If you had 20 people who you could call and be like, Hey, you guys mind coming over and helping me sandbag my house? When, when Minot got flooded, 10 years ago, I was living there. Okay. We lived down in the river Valley. <laughs> we didn't get underwater, thankfully, but barely. Um, but nonetheless, like we were in an area where it's like, we should probably get the hell out of here just in case, because this is looking like it's going to be bad. And we did, we had, Oh God, how many people were there? There was probably 15 or 20 people that we were able to call and be like, guys, we need help loading this shit up so we can get it out. Like we've got a place we can get it to, but there's no way me and my two parents are going to be able to get this done as quickly as we need to get it done. So we had like 15 people come over. We got an entire house loaded up in, I don't know, four hours. Wow. And got it the hell out of there. Yeah, maybe that's a good metric for how much of a like local community or, or even online community you have. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you can get to the point where if you're going through some kind of trouble, you could get 15 or 20 people to your location and like 
helping you load up all of your belongings into trucks or something like that. I mean, that there has to be some measure of like being able to call and support like that and people just being willing to do it. I mean, I think online an, an analogy would be, you know, like if you need help finding a job or, you know, if you're like trying to help somebody who's stuck in travel somewhere, like, you know, coordinate it out of that. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think like having that kind of extended network of capacity for, for just problems that you cannot solve yourself on, on a short term basis, like, yeah, feels pretty well, it, core and absolutely. Well, and I mean, let's let's be honest too. Like this has been that or that specifically has been like the core of human existence for everything, but like the last hundred years, maybe hundred and fifty. Yeah. Like really, since the industrial revolution, <laughs> you know, and yeah, I have many uh, thoughts and opinions on that as well, but. I'm just going to say Ted Kaczynski wasn't entirely wrong. <laughs> I I would never agree with Uncle Ted. Hey, um, Michael, it's been a pleasure having you on. I, I should jet out of here. Um, is there anything you want to show? Anything you want to show before I take off? Uh, two things. Follow me on Twitter. Corsair Michel. C-O-R-S-A-I-R-M-I-C-H-E-L. At least for now. God only knows <laughs> so how long I'll that will your be. next Fed post. Yep. <laughs> well, I fed post <laughs> practically daily, so they don't all get me suspended. Fair. Uh, <laughs> and I do also have a website where I very rarely write blogs and very rarely post recipes and things like that as well, which is also where I will be documenting the transformation of the property that I mentioned we bought into a proper homestead. Uh, and that is... Uh, I don't remember if there was a the in the beginning of that. Let me look it up. Real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, don't, that's right. I don't remember my own website. I, I, I deal with it, people. That. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there was a the at the beginning of it. Da, 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 da. Come see. on, search. Load the damn thing. Yes, okay. It is, is it, the oh, statelesscook. Yes, thestatelesscook.com. All one word, no okay. hyphens, none of that. I cheated. I looked it up in your in your profile. Um, oh yeah, I did put it there cool. too, didn't I? Yeah. So yeah, cool. uh, those are the things I'd like to show, and that uh, pretty well does it. Come come follow me on Twitter, especially if you enjoy random angry Fed posting and pictures of food, because that's mostly what I do. <laughs> I yeah, that, that's a good balance to strike. IMO like, I mean, do. There's there, there was a period of time where Celine spent, I mean, just hours of every day looking at food preparation videos, just just being so excited watching food being made in real time, and and just just I guess this was probably during pregnancy in retrospect. <laughs> anyway, that makes sense. Yeah, that posting and food posting, like the two best of both worlds, genders. man. <laughs> Pretty All right, much cool. All right. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on and, and talking for almost Absolutely. two hours. It's really good to catch, like, you know, have a conversation with you and also just catch up on the state of things in North Dakota and um, like just, just kind of like reflect on a lot of this and hope everyone else out there has enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on and uh, happy to do it again any other time you want to.
All right. Cool, man. Likewise. Take care. All right. Bye.